Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Avedisian, the Mad Shaman, a production of CosmicReality.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Ani, Mad Shaman Avedisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism, give it all a good hard shake and pour, dress it with the olives of grace and empathy, sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic co-creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. And a very happy Thanksgiving to you all. Today is November 23rd. Tomorrow is Thursday, November 24th. And it is Thanksgiving Day here in America the Beautiful. Thank you for joining me for yet another round of cocktails for this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, don da don da what's woo, don da don da and what gets flushed down the loo. In today's, YouTube keeps taking my podcasts down. How very small town, no wonder I wear a frown. Pelosi has been dispatched, good riddance, as her insanity was unmatched. They are pushing the bug-eating agenda. The world is so mad, one is reluctant to leave one's hacienda. Deep state are on a death spiral bender. Mega copulated, seems inebriated. Politicians are tweakers. Bought and sold for squeakers. Kick them with your sneakers. Mad, bad, sad little world. As always, my darlings, we try to do this with as much dignity and decorum as can be mustered on any given day. We are not always successful. I will admit to that. But we are honor bound to give it our best shot. And on this show, the Metaphysical Martini Show, we do love the odd shot now and then. Yes, we do. In fact, give me a moment here. Let me take a sip of my drinky poo and see what it's all about. Hold on. Mm, now that is a little gem. That is a keeper. And we'll talk more about that later on in the show. If you're joining us for the first time, a very warm welcome to you. Be advised, however, this show is not politically correct, as we do not wish to erode the intellect. We are not woke. We did not accept the poke. And we believe the entire official narrative is a joke, but not a funny one. The controlled demolition of this great nation does not amuse me. Allowing young children to mutilate their genitals does not amuse me. The WEF does not amuse me. In short, like Queen Victoria, I am not amused. However, I'm also not confused because I know exactly what's playing out. Such a shame, a significant portion of the population just goes along with this perverted show not knowing or perhaps not caring that they will be written out of the show if they continue presenting as useful idiots, pawns of the establishment. But hey-ho, free will leads us down a merry path. I do hope you all see the red pill at the end of that path. And if you do, I do hope you have the courage to swallow it. 
because today it's a pill. Tomorrow it might be a suppository. On today's show, my darlings, what do we have? I have no idea. I think we have quack, questions, answers, and comments. We have the cryptic mystic, really bad but occasionally brilliant poetry written by yours truly. We also have tarot, a go-go, maybe some weird and wacky tidbits from the anus of history. Who knows? Maybe a moment from Matthew. Who knows how the show will go? But last but not least, my favorite part, the recipe for the cocktail du jour. So let's get on with the show. But before we get into the main course, allow me to thank the people who make intergalactic distribution of this show possible. Mystical Wares in Mount Vernon, Washington. One, two, three. They have shungite, they have crystals, they have fancy new age stuff. They are really quite laid back, so you can shop there in the buff. They have energy devices, candles and incense too. And if you need to have a pee, they have a very nice loo. Mystical Wares, Mount Vernon, Washington. The jewelry selection is varied and quite nice. You'll be sure to find a holiday gift and not scream at the price. Their energy work blows darkness all to smithereens. And if you still need stocking stuffers, they have tons of fullerenes. Mystical Wares, Mount Vernon, Washington. Online or on location, you'll be sure to give them a standing ovation. And I'm pretty sure I will receive a phone call in the next five minutes from Mystical Wares asking me never to sing that ditty again. My darlings, what else did I want to do today before we got on with the meat of the show? Oh, I also wanted to send out a shout to TriTac Shooting Solutions in Salem, Oregon. That is not easy to say. I completed an intensive all-day home defense class there last Sunday. And I do believe all responsible gun owners should take that class. It's USCCA, so it'll be available in multiple locations. All I can say, um, apparently you're not supposed to shoot people in the back. Um, I did know that, but you know, let's just say in moments of stress, <laughs> that's where your training comes in handy. You don't know what you don't know until someone points it out to you. I learned a great deal from this class, not just about situational awareness, but I learned first aid, I learned a lot of legal issues, and the last two hours were spent in live fire training. So you have to prove a decent level of small arms competence before being allowed to participate. And I've done all the basic safety classes, plus the live fire training and all that stuff. And I spend six hours every month at the, you know, at the range and all of that, honing my newfound skills. If you live in or near Salem, Oregon, and you need a place to shoot, you won't get better than TriTac. My trainer, James Major, is excellent, and he's kind of cool, and he's kind of cute. And the staff, in addition to being genuinely pleasant people, they know the business, they'll go out of their way to help you. So TriTac Shooting Solutions in Salem, Oregon. If you like a bit of pew pew pew, TriTac is the place for you. Okay. Questions, answers, and comments. Let's move on to that because that's the reason we started the show in the first place, to hear what is on the minds of you, the people. So if you would like to share the complexity of your thought forms with the cosmos, send your emails to me, ani at oniavidician.com or by snail mail to cosmicani, 
P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, U.S. of A. And please let us know if and how you wish to be identified, or we shall refer to you as omit personal details. Well, let's get on with it. Let's shake up the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity. Shaky, shaky. Let's see what pops out. So the first one is from Omit Personal Details, who says, Dear Annie, if we lose this war, what happens? Well, Omit, I cannot answer that question. It depends on the circumstances. What does losing the war mean to you? Does it mean 100% globalist control or different systems in different regions? What does it mean mainly globalist control, but with pockets of rebels living like feral beings outside the prison camp smart cities? I don't really know what to tell you. There are so many possible scenarios. Um, I can tell you I can't see us losing it. That would be unthinkable. But I also believe it's going to be drawn out and messy because you see great awakenings generally are. A better question, if I may, is this. What is the hill I am prepared to die on? And of course, I can't answer that question for you because it depends on your understanding of sovereignty. Let's pick another. And this is from Brent in Tacoma, Washington. We get a great many letters from Tacoma, Washington. Um, I wonder if it's a little hotbed of rebellion up there. Who knows? Dear Oni, what are the chances of Earth being invaded and colonized by hostile alien forces? I ask because I have read Louise Hay. Okay. <laughs> oh, I see where you're going with this. Like attracts like, and we are pumping out darkness like it's going out of fashion. If we overload, the evil aliens may see it as an invitation to invade. <gasps> Oh, my God, Brent, whatever shall we do? You see, darling, I think that already happened. <laughs> I think that happened quite a long time ago, many moons ago. So long ago, in fact, that they all look human now and they're birthed as humans. In the spirit of seeing the big picture, I admit that it's a possibility because all things are possible, right? But I can't see it as a probability. My understanding of such things is that, you know, the good ETs maintain a steady and formidable presence around our Mother Earth and have done since 1913, when Mother Earth cried out to God and said, I love the people on this planet, but they're assholes and they're absolutely killing me. And so the good ETs came and they did energy work on Mother Gaia and they put the universal grid around her and um, they, they protect us. They protect our borders, which is something that this current administration does not do. So I really wouldn't worry about it, uh, Brent in Tacoma, Washington. Um, all shall be well on the ET front. Let's shake it up again and see what pops out. Woo! This one is from Marjorie, and Marjorie is from Bexhill-on-Sea. Oh, Bexhill-on-Sea. That's in Essex in the UK. Memories, memories. Um, Marjorie asks, 
Is there a reliable way to find out how long someone will live? I am not in a hurry to die. Life is comfortable enough. I would like to know how many years I have left because if I knew for certain, I might do things differently. Marjorie, darling, if you want to do things differently, do them differently now. Not knowing the future, taking a chance, making it an adventure. Those are the things that give life a bit of oomph, a bit of oompapa, a bit of spontaneity, a bit of spice. So unless you set a firm date in your soul contract before you came down, it's up to you when you die. You could visit a reliable medium and ask her or him if such a contract was made. Or you could try this little exercise that I use sometimes, and it's a two-parter. And it's a lot cheaper than visiting a medium. Part one, ask yourself, if I had one year left to live, what would I be doing differently? And part two, why exactly am I waiting until I have just one year to live before doing it? So I'm assuming that you're asking this question for something other than killing people or assassinating people um, or, or you know something that would say, well, you have to go to prison for life and you go, aha, <clears throat> I have cheated you because I'm going to die next year. Um, just get on with it, love. Whatever it is, do it. Do it. Not, not the killing portion. I mean, you know, I mean, I really shouldn't. I'm not advocating killing people on the radio. Just do it. Whatever it is. Have some fun in Bexhill on Sea, that that hotbed of revelry there in Essex, UK. And oh, there's a little postcard here from Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas is somewhere else we get quite a few letters from. And this is from um, Angel, or is it Angel? I don't know. Um, and Angel says, Ani, do you like fruitcake? We hate it. And we were told that in Britain, they save up their fruitcakes and take them to a festival where they fling the fruitcakes in modern day trebuchets. <laughs> do you know anything about that? Um, no, Angel, I don't know anything specifically about fruitcakes in trebuchets in the UK. Um, but I do know that many people hold fruitcake tossing events. They really do. I think the biggest one is somewhere in Colorado. But don't quote me on that. Um, also, you know, Angel, darling, how can you not like fruitcake? It's delicious and densely packed with glorious calories. I love the traditional ones from Scotland. You know, they're called the traditional Scotch whiskey cake and they're made in Dundee. And the other one I like, and this was a surprise. My American partner turned me on to this. The other fruitcake that I like is from Corsicana, Texas, and it's made by the Collins Street Bakery right there in Corsicana, Texas. Now you're in Austin. So Corsicana, I think is north of you because it's about 45 minutes south of Dallas. So it's fairly local, but you don't have to go visit them anyway. You'll, they'll send you one by mail. Try one and see if it changes your mind about fruitcakes. But Angel, let's make a deal here, darling. If anyone gives you good quality fruitcake this season, label it with my name and address put it in a trebuchet and send it along. And I promise you, I'll put it to good use. 
What else do we have in the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity today? Here's one, here's one. Okay. Dear Annie, my friend who is a bit of a nutter says that rhinoceroses cannot go to heaven. Is that true? Why would God prevent a rhinoceros from entering heaven? Were they created from dark matter? My friend says it is because of their armor plating. It's what makes them evil. If that's true, where do their souls go when they die? My friend also says we should never eat rhinoceros meat as it will turn us into rabid monsters. You should ask your friend what he's smoking, but I'm going to also tell you that there is a little bit of truth to this. Um, this is from Freddie in Wapping. Did I not say that? Freddie in Wapping, which uh, is a, the east part of London that used to be crap, but now it's come up and it's all very trendy. Um, okay, so Freddie, as silly as this sounds, your friend is partially correct. Rhinoceros souls do go to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. But some sort of transmutation of their bodies occurs before or during their ascension. I can't remember where I heard this or who I discussed it with, but I have had this conversation with a medium somewhere. And I, I suspect it'll come to me as soon as the show is over. It's something to do with the heavier, denser, ancient bodies. And I believe we could go back God, almost 25, 26, maybe even 30 million years ago, um, we had the rhinoceros uh, species. They did look a little different. They were bigger. Uh, gosh, I wish I could give you more details on this, but I know someone I can ask, and I'm actually going to see them tomorrow. So I will do that, and then I will answer your question on the next show. Now, as for eating rhinoceros meat... I suspect the rhinoceros will turn you into a splotch of jelly long before you turn into a monster from trying to eat its meat. So if you want to know about eating rhinoceros, um, I wouldn't recommend it really, but there are these people who are wild game enthusiasts. They have eaten it. Uh, they eat strange things. They eat things they shouldn't be eating. And most of them, I think, are still alive and still in human form and not monsters. So that's worth investigating. I'm going to make a note. I'm making a note, Freddie, so I don't forget to include this in the show next week. Thank you for your rhinoceros question, Mr. Freddie from Wapping. What else do we have here? What else plagues the minds of we the people this week? Let's give the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity a fresh shake. Ooh, and let's see what comes up. This is from Gayla in Ontario, who asks, Dear Arnie, Will the situation in Brazil resolve? How am I supposed to answer that? Um, there will be resolution. Of course, there always is, but in whose favor? The Brazilian people are certainly walking their talk. Will the military back them all the way? Will the military arrest the corrupt Luciferian New World Order slave managers for rigging the election? Let's hope so. After all, we all remember France. Remember France? Allons enfants de la patrie. The French started the Yellow Vest movement long before Schmovid, and they've been marching and protesting for years. Have they managed to oust Bale's bum boy Macron yet? No, he's still up there. And now he's openly talking about the New World Order and the enslavement of mankind. Are we awake yet, my people? Hello? Have we not learned anything from history? 
I guess not. You know, Gayla, I have a very good feeling about light trumping dark. I really do. Just hang in there. Stay the course. Stay positive. Um, don't allow yourself to go to a bad place and stay there. Whenever you have doubts, just ground them, breathe, realign yourself with your divinity and get back into that sort of, you know, that good space. OK, peeps, we did have a couple more questions, but I think we'll leave it there today for Quack. I want to thank you all for writing in. Um, you know, perhaps you have better things to do with your life, but you took time out to write to me and I love you and I thank you. And I also thank all of you beautiful martini heads for listening into the show. What shall we do now? Let's move on to the cryptic mystic, where we have our way with someone dead who liked to pray. <laughs> and today's fearless seer is none other than Nostradamus, Michel de Nostradamus. Who was he? What did he do? And why do we care? So he was born Michel de Nostradamus. We don't have much verifiable information on him. We have stories told over and over again, but we have hardly any first-hand information. We do know he was born in Provence in France on December 14th, 1503, to Jacques de Notre Dame, a well-to-do grain merchant, and Renier de Saint-Rémy. And we know that he was baptized Michel de Notre Dame. We know he had four brothers, but we know nothing about them. So I'll pretty much ignore them. I think one of them, Jean de Notre Dame, he rose to some prominence in Provence and became a public prosecutor. But he also had a great love for poetic flair, like his uh, like his brother. I don't know about the rest of the brothers, so let's forget them. <clears throat> let's see. He's born in 1503. He is nine years old, 1512. And his family have noticed he's quite bright. I mean, he comes from an educated and well-to-do family, but they notice that this young man is really quite brilliant. So they let him study with his grandfather, a physician and all-around good egg, one Jean de Saint-Rémy. And according to the order of that day, he studied Latin, Greek, Hebrew, mathematics, and celestial sciences, which we would think of as astrology, which was very borderline with the occult back in that day, because we must remember the Inquisition. The Inquisition thought that astrology was akin to witchcraft. So he studies with his great-grandfather. Jean de Saint-Rémy was his great-grandfather. And when he's old enough to go to a proper school, and by this time we're at 1517, he is accepted by the school of Avignon, and he's the youngest student ever to be accepted by the School of Avignon. And back in that day, Avignon was a real Christian hotbed. Uh, it was also, as much as they could, a center of free thought to quite an extent, um, you know, uh, Inquisition notwithstanding. And Michael was noticed, uh, Michel was noticed because he was he was brilliant and he also had like a photographic memory um, and he wasn't afraid to experiment. But he seemed to be a bit of a libertarian and it seems that his lack of respect for authority and his over-the-top passion for astrology gave the school a bit of a headache. 1517, I believe, is the same year that Martin Luther 
nailed his 95 statements to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. So, ooh, rebellion is in the air and Michel is riding that wave. Um, he does fairly well there at the school in Avignon, um, but his parents are a little perturbed that he's getting really into the astrology and the occult and he's not studying to be a doctor, which is what they really wanted. So in 1522, to save his reputation and further his education, they send him to the University at Montpellier to study medicine, very well respected university. Um, and he starts his studies, he, he does very well, but 1525, the Black Plague ravages the French countryside. So Michel has to stop his studies because the school closes. And he's also a top notch student. Um, he left the school to wander the land helping plague victims. And at, a, at a later point, he does return and he does finish his degree. But all of the students left to help the plague victims and most were unprepared. But Michel gained quite a reputation. After all, he did grow up in Provence, which was um, a botanical paradise in its day. And he became interested in plants at a very young age. His great grandfather, Jack, uh, Jean de Saint-Rémy, uh, was a doctor himself and knew a great deal about plant medicine. And so Michel's interest in plants blossomed into a love for plant medicine. Very good segue into him becoming an apothecary and a doctor. And by all accounts, he was an exceptional doctor, traveling the country during the plagues, making recommendations in sanitation and medication that saved a great many lives. News of his abilities spread across France and he was in demand and he made quite a bit of money. Uh, he apparently saved, you know, sort of whole villages and they gave him a stipend and a couple of them gave him a nice little chunk of change there. So, you know, poor thing, he's trying to do his studies and he's going up and down France and some of Italy, curing the plague, learning a lot, visiting apothecaries, telling them what he's doing right, telling them what they're doing wrong. And his knowledge, he's all about sharing knowledge, which is something I think he picked up from his great grandfather. Jean de Saint-Rémy was very much about, you know, this is not proprietary knowledge, share what you learn. We're fast forwarding now to 1534. He's probably a little bit tired from all this uh, plague watching and dealing with all the um, people with their massive boobons. Um, he, he gets a request from Scalinger, that's a Julius Caesar Scalinger, a noted philosopher um, and a bit of a rebellious uh, humanist. Um, and you know, Scalinger says to him, Michel, come to Agen, um, come and stay with me for a while. And he did. And they seemed to hit it off quite well. Michel had a successful practice in Agen. Uh, he also met a lovely lady. I believe her name was Henrietta. They got married. They had two children whose names are not known. But everything seemed fabulous for a while. You know, there was an, you know, they got on. He and, uh, you know, Scalinger got on really well. At some point they had an argument. Nobody knows what that was about. And they, they sort of, their friendship ended. But that wasn't really the issue. What broke the dream for him is there was another outbreak of the Black Death. The Black Death came to Agen. Michel did his duty. He was a wonderful doctor. He took care of everybody that he could. But unfortunately, his wife and children, they got the plague. And nothing Michel did for them worked as a cure. And he saw his wife and children die. His wife's family 
were very upset. They were distraught. In fact, they sued him for the return of their daughter's dowry. And despite all his successes, he now became known as the doctor who could not cure his own family. And his practice took a nosedive. He was getting ready to leave, Arjun. And if that wasn't enough, a casual comment he had made to a workman about a religious statue a year before his family died came back to haunt him. Somehow, what he said offended the artisan. It got to the Inquisition, and the Inquisition asked Michel to travel to Toulouse to answer charges of heresy. And to that, Michel went, no bloody way, mate. He did not think that was a good idea. So he packed up his kit and he left town. He retreated to the countryside to restore his soul and to process the events of the last few years. And it was during this period of retreat, we believe, that his powers of prophecy came to be. If he had the gift of prophecy before the mid-1530s, we have no record of it. And let's be honest, we really don't have much record of anything when it comes to this bloke. At some point, we do know he moved to the beautiful walled city of Salon. He remarried. He found himself a nice rich widow, always useful. And even with the nosedive in his career, you know, he had money. He did make money. After all, he had spent years traveling all over France and certain parts of Italy treating plague victims. But a little extra cash always comes in handy. So I think they got on very well. He married this lovely lady, Anne Ponsard-Gemel. They must have liked each other pretty well because they, they had six children together. And you have to do things together to get children that prove that you like each other, you see, for those who didn't know. <laughs> he settled down there, he converted the top floor of their home and made it his personal man cave, where it really was his prophecy cave. And while he worked diligently on his uh, prognostications, he made quite a bit of extra money as an apothecary for wealthy local clients. And they didn't always want medicine from him, they wanted cosmetics, lotions, potions, face creams, and he also did astrology. And people wanted their charts read. And he did okay. Everything was working really well. People did say that because he was a Jew whose family had converted to Catholic Christianity a generation before his birth, he didn't get on very well with the common or garden people of the town. They looked at him with suspicion, um, not just because he was a converted Jew, probably because of the astrology, which again, the Inquisition thought of as witchcraft. Um, the prophecies, because everyone knows Michel de Notre Dame, Nostradamus, everyone knows him for his predictions, his prophecies, but that's not his only written work. It's just the one that he's known for. So if you want to go to the library and pick up some books about him, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see some other writings in there that are quite interesting. But the quatrains are what people are interested in, those four-line little ditties. So let's examine a few of his quatrains and see what we can make of them. Here we go. Rain, famine, and war in Persia will not cease. A trust too great will betray the monarch. For the end was planned and conceived in France, a secret sign for one to be more sparing. 
do bear in mind the original quatrains were not written in Latin. They were written in the French of the day, and I don't speak the French of the day, so they have been translated into English by some lovely scholar somewhere. Rain, famine, and war in Persia will not cease. A trust too great will betray the monarch. For the end was planned and conceived in France, a secret sign for one to be more sparing. So we believe this refers to 1963 when Ayatollah Khomeini staged a mass protest against the Shah of Persia and his government. Khomeini was ex exiled to Iraq after that, and he started his 15-year struggle to form his movement. He was removed from Iraq in 1978, but continued to plan the movement, which, you know, the movement being the Iranian Revolution. He planned it from Paris, conceived in France. So that's the planned and conceived in France portion accounted for. The trust portion, I believe, would refer to the trust the Shah had in his American handlers, a secret sign for one to be more sparing. I think that that could be that the Shah modernized his country too quickly, pushing the people too far too quickly, and also using methods that push too far to suppress dissent. Um, I'm not saying I agree that that's what it means, but scholars greater than I, uh, I'm not actually a scholar, uh, deciphered this. And, and who am I, drinky-poo in hand, to disagree? But that does, you know, that, that makes sense. That, that could definitely be the Shah. Should we do another one? Let's do another one. Let's pick something a little bit older. The great queen, when she will see herself conquered, will be excessive in masculine courage. Upon a horse, totally vulnerable, she will pass over the river. Pursued by the sword, she will outrage her faith. So scholars believe this is Mary Stuart because she outraged her Catholic subjects by having an affair with Bothwell, who's a bit of a lad, to be honest. And she was a hardy lass, so maybe that's the excessive masculine. She escaped prison, that's hardy, only to see her army unfortunately defeated at Langside. She fled to England. Did she pass over a river? Well, she did cross the Solway Firth, and that's very wet. So perhaps that's that, because she went to England to seek assistance from Queen Elizabeth. But Mary was a stubborn one and ended up becoming the Queen's prisoner and she was executed in 1587. So that makes sense. That could be, that could be Mary Stuart. Have you noticed that I play devil's advocate to these things? Um, I don't buy these things hook, line and sinker. And we'll do one more. Divine wrath will surprise the great prince a short time before he will have married a woman. Both support and credit will suddenly diminish. Counsel, he will die because of the shaven heads. Aha. Aha. This would be Charles I of England, 1625. On his wedding day, he made a public decree that the persecution of Catholics in England would stop. So the divine wrath was the Puritan backlash. And Parliament was already pissed off with Charles. They vetoed his request for money for the war against Spain. Credit diminished. That's what that could be. They were also miffed because he married a Catholic princess. Diminished support. Council, he will die because of the shaven heads. Well, the shaven heads would be the roundheads. And his own council sentenced him to death, no doubt bullied to do so by the shaven heads, the roundheads. Interesting stuff. 
Michel de Notre Dame died on July the 2nd, 1566. It is believed of um, some sort of swelling um, in his joints. He told his assistant, you will not see me alive at sunrise. He wrote his will and he was right. He was not seen again alive at sunrise. So if you'd like to learn more about him, go to your local library while it's still legal to read and check out a copy of The Complete Prophecies by John Hogue. That's a place to start and go from there. And don't go and look up these prophecies on the internet. Go study the books and try to figure out what you think these things mean. Many people say that Michel de Notre Dame wrote in code, which just, just confuses them. Why do people cipher these things? If you have a prediction, just write it out so we can all get it. But that's the cryptic mystic for today. And if you do want to know a little bit more about him and you don't want to go to the library, I am doing a cosmic conversation via Zoom this Saturday. Uh, so go to my website, arniabedison.com, and sign up on that. And I will talk to you for 90 minutes about Michel de Notre Dame. And that's it for the cryptic mystic today. Let's move on to... Tarot a go go a little what the heck from our favorite tarot deck now where are my cards oh here they are yes I believe today's card is the page of pentacles so for all of you who are following along with your tarot cards we are the page of pentacles and I'm using the Robin Wood deck today so we have a little page could be a girl could be a boy you just can't tell these days and holding a giant golden coin who doesn't like that pentacles are about prosperity aren't they they're about coin and all types of prosperity not just coin what are pages they open doors they bring messages they start things here's a message sir the beginning of a new project let me open the door for you sir so you can walk through it and go into your next experience so this is a lovely little coin I would say you're certainly going to get some sort of financial gain. It may not be huge, but you're going to get something out of this. You're definitely going to see some money. Um, how it comes to you, who knows? It might be a message. It might be a check. Uh, we don't know. But it's good news about money and finances. It also seems to come up a lot with educational opportunities. Um, school events, education making progress in your studies um, all things to do with hmm i'm picking it up and I'm, I'm i'm having the page transmit this information to me um, i feel like when you get a page you're going to be a little bit patient and you've got to be a bit open-minded and set some realistic goals because it's the beginning of something new perhaps a new business enterprise a new opportunity. Um, you'll be presented with an opportunity for maybe a scholarship, maybe business. Who knows? It's if it's in the upright position, generally it's something worth, you know, looking into at the very least. Um, I get a very sort of quiet feeling when I look at this card. At reflection. So this is a hardworking. Pentacles don't rush around like blue ass flies, do they? They take things slow and steady. They want to cross the T's and dot the I's. They don't want to have to go over things. It's more of a slow plod with a pentacle. But there's nothing to go back and correct. 
that's what I like about this suit. There's a lot of practical, um, you know, application here. Sensible, diligent. Uh, yeah, plod. Take it seriously, take it slow. Let's turn it upside down. Let's put it in the reversed or challenge position. Let's see how we feel about that. <clears throat> well, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. <laughs> um, bad news, I'd say. You're probably still going to get the news, of course, but it's not going to be good news, is it? Uh, delays, perhaps. Um, somebody making some mistakes, some carelessness, close-mindedness. Um, shoddy work, superficial knowledge. Um, stuck on a tiny detail, not moving forward, resistance, stubbornness. But uh, if you get this in the upright position, double check everything, investigate matters thoroughly. I'm not saying it's outright deception. But especially in bureaucracy, people just don't care. You're just a number, aren't you? You know, so you might need to follow up a little bit more on things if you get this in the challenged position. Once in a while, it also comes up as a child with a, a young person with learning disabilities. That's happened before. Um, mm, once in a while, too, a rebellious child. Uh, what was that movie? Rebel, Rebel Without a Cause? Yes, that type of thing. So there it is, the Page of Pentacles. Gosh, people, um, I know some of you really like the tarot section. Some of you really don't. But here's the good news for those who don't. Once we finish the court cards, that's it. There's no more tarot a go-go. So savor it, my darlings, while it's still available. Let's move on. What is it time for now? I think it's time for a tiny pat of poetry. But first, let me take a sip of my drinky poo. Mm. 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 This was <clears throat> the first time I've had this one. It's very good. It's very good. I will share it with you towards the end of the show. A tiny pat of poetry. <coughs> yes, folks. After a hard day's shamaning, I like nothing better than coming home, putting my feet up, making a nice cup of tea or a small drinky poo, and writing really bad but occasionally brilliant non-peer-reviewed poetry. Today, it is my pleasure to present to you a salubrious selection of my limericks and ditties, so wonderful you'll want to shake your titties. Thank you very much, and here we go. This one is dedicated to um, science fiction fans, especially Star Trek fans, because I am a Trekkie. And this one is called Ode to Romulan Ale. Oh, perfect pint, azure, resplendent. With just one sip, I am transcendent. Oh, sacred beer, oh, otherworldly hops. In my native tongue, thou art knockout drops. For those who are not Trekkies, Romulan ale is blue. That's why it is azure, resplendent. And um, on to, I think, a little ode about champagne. From beer to champagne. Tiny bubbles, divine effervescence, you grace our world with your sparkling presence. 
a crystal flute. Perfect presentation. A song to celebrate secondary fermentation. What the future holds, no one may know. But I have no fear as I sip my Clicquot. <laughs> I'm very fond of that. I'm very fond of Clicquot too. And last but not least, in my little limericks, Ode to a Manhattan. Definitely one of my favorite cocktails. Here we go. I just wrote this one the other day while I was making a Manhattan. <laughs> Bourbon, warm and glorious, mingling with dark, sweet vermouth. A prize for the meritorious, a libation fit for a sleuth. Two drops of bitters, a kiss from Lady Luxardo. It will soothe the jitters and release your mind from the bardo. All right, well, that's it for the liquid lunch selection there. Um, on the next show, I will share more poems with you, but I'll share poems that are not about cocktails. I do hope you enjoyed those, because if you didn't, well, you know, I suppose you were bored then, weren't you? I mean, you know, <laughs> there we are. All right, my darlings, tomorrow is Thanksgiving. I know it doesn't mean anything to anybody outside America, but this is where I live. It's an American tradition and it is a secular holiday. So all faiths can come together, atheists too, and give thanks for the challenges disguised as blessings that we experienced thus far in 2022. My fellow patriots, there is no doubt our country, the entire world actually, is under attack from the darkest of forces. Until quite recently, America was a fairly evenly divided place between people who just didn't want to know, people who are totally media washed and the people who are self-aware. Now it's fair to say, and probably because the cost of living has quadrupled, it's fair to say we're seeing a significant shift from the washed camp into the I am now aware camp. And I rejoice to see this. And as I rejoice, I would like to offer some advice. We were all asleep once. Do you remember how you felt when the illusion shattered you? That gnawing feeling in your gut when you realized that everything you were taught was a lie. Do you remember the revolving door of emotions, the shock, the dismay, the anger, the attempts to justify how you could have missed the obvious? And then, of course, the desire to share the blame and rearranging the prejudices. Perhaps you went through a preacher phase, evangelizing like a reformed drug addict. Or you might have found yourself very angry at being dismissed by your friends and family, and inevitably certain relationships were rearranged. What I'm trying to say is this. A great many of the newly awakened are in what I call the rage stage. Seemingly overnight, their world is on a different dimension. And how is one supposed to just accept that, leave the past behind and just move on? 
there's a lot to process. You, my beautiful martini heads, may have woken up years ago, maybe decades ago. But your newbie friends have woken up in the middle of the nightmare and they are scared. And they will need support and they will need guidance. And until they settle down, they'll need a shoulder to cry on. Family relationships have been much altered over the last three years. That's put a bit of a strain on holiday gatherings. Now, I'm the first to say compromise has its place. But of course, compromising one's core moral principles, that's not negotiable. It should be clear by now to all clear minded beings, the hill upon which they are prepared to die. My darlings, we are living simultaneously in the worst of times and in the best of times. The worst of times, because people have become easily manipulated non-thinkers and we are on the brink of a Luciferian globalist takeover. The best of times, because perhaps it had to get this bad before people engaged in something outside the hamster wheel. And when we win this war, we will have witnessed the greatest awakening our planet has ever seen. And there is no going back from that level of victory. Mankind will ascend into a higher thought vibration and the darkness will be banished forever and ever. Amen and huzzah. As more corruption is exposed, will some of those broken relationships be mended? I think so. Not all, but some. Let us remind ourselves then that the most important relationship we will ever have is with ourselves, with our God. If there's a war within us, we should make peace. Because in such an unbalanced world, we don't stand a chance unless we can control that small, still point within us. This Thanksgiving, think about what you want to give thanks for. I have much to be thankful for, not the least of which is inner growth. I have learned patience as never before. I have learned that grace is a comfortable garment to wear. I give thanks as I see the seeds of sanity I planted here and there begin to sprout. And I've learned that if I put my mind to it, I can live without pizza and donuts. It is true, if we can control our cravings and our appetite, we can learn to overcome anything. So huzzah to me for learning that. And I am grateful indeed for the support of all of you beautiful martini heads out there. Without you, I would be oh so very lonely. And now my darlings, because that was so serious, Shall we have some weird and wacky tidbits from the anus of history? Let's do it. Let's do it. Where's my kazoo? <coughs> Let's do it. And since tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day, we sent our highly paid researchers on a trip to discover odd things about Thanksgiving and turkeys. And here's a selection from their findings. According to the United States Calorie Control Council, an 
Darlings, I had absolutely no idea that such a thing as the United States Calorie Control Council um, exists. I mean, they must be doing a terrible job because we're all fat or a really good job because they want to make us fat. I don't know. But according to the CCC, an average American may consume up to 5,000 calories and 230 grams of fat on Thanksgiving Day. I don't think that's going to be a problem, and I think that's probably quite accurate. On average, we are told, Americans purchase about 250 million pounds of potatoes during this season, as well as 77 million pounds of ham during this Thanksgiving week. But turkey is the food most consumed. That's why it's called Turkey Day. I don't know why turkey is the food most consumed. It's horrible. I don't enjoy it. You have to brine it for like a week before it tastes like anything resembling meat. But there we are. Maybe that's just another one of those great Illuminati cons. You know, chicken is so much tastier, isn't it? But no, we have to eat turkey because it's a celebration day. All right, here's a little tidbit about Thanksgiving in Florida. More people travel to Orlando, Florida than anywhere else on Thanksgiving. Why is that? And is that really true? I'm going to have to research that. What are they all doing in Orlando? What happens in Orlando in Thanksgiving? And is there any standing room left in Orlando on Thanksgiving? I'll have to ask the producer of the show who lives in Florida. Here's another little tidbit. When Lincoln made Thanksgiving a holiday, it was on the last Thursday of each November as we celebrate it now. However, in 1939, President Roosevelt moved it to the third Thursday of November. I think he wanted to allow an extra week of shopping for the holiday season. It's always about commerce, isn't it? However, we the people were not a fan of the change, so it was officially and legally changed. So on December 26, 1941, Roosevelt signed a bill establishing the fourth Thursday in November as Thanksgiving in the US. And that is how we have always celebrated it. And that is how we will always celebrate it for as long as there is a United States of America. And there will always be a United States of America. What other little tidbit do I have here? Oh, yes, the Swanson Ready Meals. So, 1953, one of the Swanson employees accidentally overordered Thanksgiving turkeys. And when I say accidentally overordered, he ordered 260 tons extra. This was a problem, you see. Um, but a very bright salesman had to think about aeroplane food. He thought, ooh, they serve it in those little nasty trays. And he had the idea to package a full meal like an aeroplane meal on aluminum trays and sell them to the public. The idea was approved. They started out with 5,000 trays filled with turkey, gravy, peas, and sweet potatoes. They were sold for 98 cents, and that's in 1953, and they were a hit. And since then, TV dinners have become a normal staple of dinners for people on the go in a rush, on a budget, blah, blah, blah. And I really just don't know why, because this is marketing. I mean, the guy was a genius, first of all, to be able to get rid of all that surplus stock. But how is it that people think of a TV dinner as a treat? It looks like something you get in prison. Or so I'm told. Mm, there's the power of marketing for you, darling. And here's another little odd fact. Um, we don't really have any Thanksgiving songs these days, as far as I know. 
But that very famous uh, song, Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, published way back in 1857, written by James um, Pierpont, uh, it was actually for commemorating Thanksgiving. So when he composed the song, the town he lived in, Medford, had very popular sleigh races, hence the one horse open sleigh portion of the lyrics. And what's even crazier is that it's meant to be a drinking song because Medford also had a huge industry for making rum. So I suppose we're never going to listen to that song quite in the same way. Um, you know, jingle bells, jingle bells, dashing through the snow in a one horse open sleigh. All the fields we go laughing all the way, laughing because we've had a drinky poo. Bells on bobtails ring, making spirits bright. Oh, what fun it is to ride a slaying song tonight. One of the verses um, I really I find so funny. I always did. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. A day or two ago, I thought I'd take a ride. And soon Miss Fanny Bright was seated by my side. The horse was lean and lank. Misfortune seemed his lot. He got into a drifted bank and then we got upstart. Um, upstart. What is funny about that is um, he wanted to take a ride with Miss Fanny Bright. Now, in America, Fanny means um, back bottom. In England, Fanny means front bottom. So it's rather rude if you read it the English way. It's not very good at all. Um, so anyway, next time you sing Jingle Bells, just know that it's a drinking song to celebrate drinking and riding a one-horse open sleigh during the Thanksgiving season. So yes, we will never think about that song the same way anymore. I think we'll stop with the tidbits there. I think we'll just stop with everything because this drink is getting to me and I'm really rather tiddly. Um, so I'll just say, oh my God, people, look at the time. We are almost at the end of the show. Let me completely finish my drink. <clears throat> Very nice. Okay, I have finished my drink and that always means the end is near. The end of the show, not the end of the world. Thank you for joining me, my darlings. And I do hope you enjoyed listening in as much as I enjoyed recording it because I had a blast. Why would I not have a blast? I get to hang out with like-minded people all over the world. Today's real life cocktail was, wait for it, a bourbon renewal made with wild turkey bourbon. And here's how you make it. The juice of one lemon, one ounce. Half an ounce simple syrup, one dash of Angostura bitters and two ounces, maybe three, of wild turkey bourbon and half an ounce of creme de cassis, which is a blackcurrant liqueur. I just bought the Hiram Walker. You get the bourbon, the lemon juice, the creme de cassis, the simple syrup, the bitters into a cocktail shaker, fill with ice, shaky, shaky, shaky until well chilled, strain into an ice filled old fashioned glass and you drink it and it's yummy and it's perfect for a cold fall evening. I'm Annie, mad shaman Avidician. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, my darlings, I hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving, unless you are an Oregonian who voted for Measure 114, in which case I hope your turkey bites you back. But whatever else you get up to, my darlings, God bless you all and let the spirit inhabit the human.
have been listening to the metaphysical martini with Ani Alphadesian, the mad shaman, a production of cosmicreality.com.